Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Messenger on C103. And a very good Wednesday morning to you with the weather forecast like that. I'd be staying indoors today. If you do have to venture out, don't go too far away. I certainly have a brolly with you wherever you are. John Paul taking your calls at 1850-333-103. Just atrocious weather that we're having at the moment. I mean, for considering we're what, nearly into, we're into the second week of May you should be expecting a little bit of sunshine and people talking about staycations and you're looking out at the... And when we get the downpours, they really, really are downpours. You would be absolutely soaked if you get caught out in it. I know we're trying to get somebody on this week to talk to us about the weather and what's going on and is there any possibility of any decent sunshine in the weeks ahead. You can text or WhatsApp the programme this morning at 0862 103 103 and I'm already getting texts in about vaccination appointments and I am expecting to possibly get more of these texts today and tomorrow because the HSC have been on to us and they've asked us to mention to the good people of North Cork and West Cork that you will start to receive vaccination appointments uh, today and the vaccination centre you're going to ask to attend is going to be in Cork City. North Cork people will be expecting to go to the vaccination centre in Mallow while West Cork people have been expected to either be called to the Bantry Vaccination Centre or the Clon Vaccination Centre. But appointments that are being issued today, and this is for people in the 60 to 69 uh, age group, about 2,000 people in their 60s are going to be receiving a text message today in West Cork and North Cork uh, telling them that their appointment is going to be in Cork City. Now, although most people, the HSE say, who have received appointments for the Vaccination Centre have got the vaccination centre that is closest to them but they say we're we're planning to run additional appointments for North Cork and the West Cork population and bring them into the city this weekend. Now that by the way is is in addition to people who will continue to get appointments for Mallow and for the West Cork vaccination centres that's not to say that the Mallow and West Cork vaccination centres are not going to operate this weekend, they are but they are getting additional appointments into the uh, city. I'm assuming the city vaccination centres are bigger, are they, than the two, uh, the three in the uh, county? And the reason behind it is they want to ensure that 
everyone in the 60 plus age group in Cork who have registered for, for an appointment will receive their vaccination within the next week. So they're going to do their, this 2,000. They've decided to pick 2,000 people from North Cork and West Cork. And because obviously the appointments are all have filled up for the North and West Cork vaccination centres, they're sending them to the city instead. Now the HSE say that they do understand that people may not have expected to travel outside of their locality for the vaccination and they are thanking people in advance for their cooperation. I suppose on the good news, it does mean an extra 2,000 people are going to be vaccinated and the, um, the vaccinations are going to run this weekend, so it's going to be on Saturday and Sunday. And Claire has already texted me this morning to say, hi Patricia, I finally got my appointment for my COVID uh, vaccination and so much for the postcodes. I live on the N73 side of Mitchellstown and so obviously Claire would have been expecting an appointment at the Mallow Vaccination Centre. My appointment now is for Pork Equive. Do you know if I can change the centre, uh, please? I tell you, when we last looked into this was when one of our listeners from the Fomoy area got an appointment during the week to go to Killarney. And when they rang up the HSE on the 1850, 24, 1850 to say, we're going to have to drive through Mallow to go to Killarney. We were expecting to have an appointment in Mallow. Could we change, please? And it was explained to them that they could cancel that vaccination appointment but the person on the other end of the phone, it's a computer generated appointment system, said, I can't guarantee that you're not going to get Killarney again. So the, the couple in question who contacted us decided to run with Killarney. So I imagine, Claire, if you ring up 1850, 24, 1850 and ask to be put in Mallow, I imagine you're going to get a similar response. It's, 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 there, there isn't an individual person deciding who goes where. It seems to be all computer generated. So you could go back into the system, but there's nothing to say you're not going to get Porky Queeve again. But as you said, at the top of your text, you've finally gotten your appointment, Claire. I don't know when, if it's for this weekend or not, but you're on the road to being uh, fully vaccinated. So just to give that out to people, you're going to particularly people who will be receiving text messages today, about 2,000 people. Uh, but the whole plan is to try to get the over 60s. I mean, we had been hearing during the week that at the end of this week, which you assume, what's the last day of the week? Is the last day of the week Sunday or is the first day of the week Sunday? I know there's always an argument about that. To me, the week ends on Sunday and then begins again on Monday. But the hope was that everybody in the over, from 60 to 69, that all of them would be vaccinated by the end of this week. And then the rollout for the over 50 would begin in earnest next week. So obviously that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get through the 60 plus age group and they have discovered the number of people that have registered in North Cork and West Cork. These 2,000 people would have been waiting if they were, if they left these 2,000 people and waited for slots in either Mallow Clonakilty or Bantry. Obviously, it would delay the rollout for the over 50s in North and West Cork if they were to leave them until next week. So just, but the good news is that 2,000 people should be, can expect to be getting a text message today from the HSE with regard to your vaccination appointment. And pregnant women should be starting to get text messages in the coming days, inviting them to go along for their COVID-19 vaccine. Now, this is pregnant women who are between 14 and 36 weeks gestation. They've been identified by the maternity hospitals and they can get a vaccine after they've obviously had a consultation with their doctor or their midwife. The women will be offered the vaccine in their nearest vaccination uh, centre. Small number, of course, of stillbirths 
had been linked to COVID-19 and a number of pregnant women had had to be admitted to intensive care after contracting COVID-19 while pregnant, although thankfully there's been no maternal deaths due to COVID-19. The HSE last week said that it had asked all of the maternity units to identify eligible pregnant women for the vaccine and the pregnant women will either get a Pfizer or a Materna jab. So if you're between 14 and 36 weeks, you can expect to get you don't need to register. You can expect to get a text message from the HSC. And there's also COVID vaccines for 12 to 15 year olds. They could be available here uh, by early summer, it seems. The, the vaccine that will be used will be the Pfizer. It looks set to get approval by the European Medicines Agency for 12 to 15 year olds. And it's expected that the EMA will give the nod to Pfizer for 12 to 15 year olds at the end of this month or early in June. Emma Cook, she of course is the Irish born director of the European Medicines uh, Agency. She says they're currently assessing the vaccine and she said approval of the jab could be given as early as this month. Now the EU already has advanced purchase agreements for Pfizer and that will allow Ireland to secure stocks of the vaccine, particularly if they need now uh, stocks to give to 12 to 15 year olds. It would mean secondary school pupils, because they'd be the 12 to 15 year olds, they would be vaccinated before the the start of the school year. So that certainly is some good news for the young people because it certainly would give them additional uh, freedoms. We're due, just from Pfizer alone, we're due to get between 6 and 7 million doses of Pfizer this year because we know that at some stage this year we will have way more vaccines than we need. Um, So, and it is the Pfizer that they're going to give to that age group. The Pfizer vaccine at the moment is only approved for people aged uh, 16 and older. If the European Medicines Agency approved the jab then our NIAC, the National Immunisation Advisory Committee here they would examine the advice given from the EMA and they would decide then if it's to be offered to pupils in Ireland or not but generally speaking once the EMA give the nod to something, NIAC take a look at it and we generally roll with the advice that's given from the European Med- Medicines Agency. Daniel is wondering about people from North and West Cork being asked to go to the city for their jabs and Claire already telling us she's got an appointment to go to Porky Cueve. Daniel is wondering what are delays like at the vaccination centres in the city. There's two vaccination centres there's Porky Cueve and there's City Hall so I don't know if everyone's going to be sent to Porky Cueve seeing as Claire got her vaccination appointment for there or whether it's going to be a mix between the City Hall and uh, Porky Cueve but Daniel is wondering what are the delays like in the city? Are they hour long delays to get into to queue up to get your vaccine and I don't think so Ike, because I know we have a lot of our listeners from the city who've already contacted us when we were talking about how efficient some of the vaccination centres were and how you know people were glowing in their reports of what a lovely experience it was to go along and get their vaccine and I certainly don't I, we certainly didn't get any texts in from listeners who got their jabs in the city saying that they had an excessive delay or that they were queuing up for an hour or more as far as I know people arrived at their appointed time, went in, did the registration, went along, got their vaccine, spent, say, say for their 15 minutes back in the car and home again. So no, I don't think for people who now from the county are going to be asked to go to the city,
city. I don't think there's going to be additional delays and I'm assuming uh, Daniel's worried about the fact that it is the city with those vaccination centres to be busy. I don't think so. I was mentioning about how crazy the weather is as we're into the second week in May. A Cork City listener says, Trish, on the weather, my dad always used to say, a wet and windy May fills the barns with corn and hay. Never heard that before. A wet and windy May fills the barns with corn and hay. So does that mean that farmers like a wet and a windy at May? And then the Cork City listener says summer is June, July and August. May isn't summer. You see, I don't know about that. When I went to school, we were always led to believe, this is what we learned in school, that the three months of summer were May, June and July. And then August, September and October were the three months of autumn, even though we often get August and September can be probably some of the best weather that we get in this country. So then you've got August, September and October, they're autumn. And then November, December, January is winter. And then spring is February, March and April. And I know there's, there's, there's always an argument about that is, is May the summer or is May still a month in spring? A Cork City listener reckons May is in spring and it's June, July and August that are, are the summer months. Now we had a text early this morning going, morning Patricia, I was wondering if you heard anything about the new Jim Sheridan documentary uh, please called Murder at the Cottage. This is the one about Sophie Tuscon de Plantier that, is, that Jim Sheridan has been working on now for quite uh, a few years. It was advertised in newspapers and magazines a few weeks ago with the release date for the 9th of May which was last Sunday. I can't find it on Sky Crime. Have you heard anything about it? I wonder, have you watched it? Thanking you. That's from Louise. And we did check Murder at the Cottage, The Search for Justice for Sophie. Five part series with all episodes released on Sky Crime on May. It does say on May 9th. The five part series is also available to stream via via now, via the entertainment uh, pass. Now, I have Sky at home, so I'm going to have to wait and check. I certainly haven't seen it. Did anybody watch, it would have been episode one of The Search for Justice for Sophie, Murder at the Cottage. It was meant to have been released on last Sunday. Has anybody seen it? John Paul said he's checked the streaming service. It doesn't appear as of yet. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, has, did anybody see it? Was it on Sunday night on Sky Crime? Sky Crime is not a channel that I check. You know the way you've got your favourite ones and you check all your favourite ones to see what's coming on and you've got reminders on certain programmes. You've got other programmes set to record. I have to say Sky Crime is not one of the ones that I normally watch so I'm going to have to go home and uh, check it but if it is if it was released then it would surely be available on Catch Up so anyway let's put it out for our listeners did anybody spot the first episode of Murder at the Cottage the search for justice for Sophie was expected to be on Sky Crime last Sunday 1850 John Paul taking your calls you can text our WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Court today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. Now protests have been held outside a number of maternity hospitals uh, this week to highlight how the COVID-19 restrictions are affecting patients and their partners. Maternity Advocacy Group Ames is calling for an easing of restrictions that prevent partners from attending scans. This morning, a protest will be held at 11 o'clock outside the uh, maternity hospital 
Hospital at CUH. And Carissa Lynch of Ames joins me with more details. Good morning to you, Carissa. Good morning, and, Patricia. Thanks for having us on. Well, you're very welcome. Now, last week, Paul Reid of the HSE asked maternity hospitals to lift these restrictions. Did many maternity hospitals respond? As far as we're aware, there was no change. <laughs> so as far as we're aware, the situation in CUMH at the moment, uh, as per a letter that all patients received during the last week, is that there's no antenatal visiting and there's no postnatal visiting and that partners can accompany uh, their, their other halves uh, during labour, but only when the labour is deemed to be fully active. So that means only when the baby's about to pop its head out, basically, or if there's a caesarean. So that cuts out, for example, all of the antenatal visits that partners would normally attend. And, you know, it can be a bit nerve-wracking during the antenatal period. Sometimes the news is not good and people do need support. And, of course, that includes the scan. And then we have the issue of coming in in early labour, you know, not having the baby's head ready to pop out. And what we do find in CUMH, for example, because CUMH covers, you know, a huge county, it covers a, a wide area, and a lot of people do come in and get induced because they live very far away. And we know that it's about 35% of people who give birth in CUMH will be induced and partners are not permitted to attend an induction. Inductions take about 48 hours, anything from 6 to 48 hours, especially if it's your first, it can be long. And there's no pain relief offered in those situations. And a partner really plays such a crucial role in keeping you know, a birthing person together at that point. So it's a very difficult situation and we really are looking for leadership from the Minister of Health. You know, stop kicking this can down the road and just put a word out and insist that all the maternity units conform with the, uh, with the governance, conform with the guidance, and just start allowing people back in. Because for goodness sake, sure, we can all go to pennies today. <laughs> get your hair, and get your hair cut. In, in oh, I'm the, going. I'm uh, going this oh, afternoon uh, to get uh, my hair cut. Exactly. Well done. <laughs> um, but in the early days of the pandemic, was there an understanding as to why these restrictions were necessary? Well, you see, there, there you go. I mean, I think in the early days, sure, we all just said whatever needs to be done needs to be done. We accept anything and everything because we want to keep, well, we've always wanted to keep people safe. But I think people accepted very conservative and quite extreme uh, guidance. Nonetheless, I, even at the very, very beginning, the WHO's recommendation was that a woman going through labour should have a partner with her all the way through. And the national guidance from the HSE was that a woman should have a partner all the way through. But most hospitals did not conform with that, and nobody called them to order. And none of the hospitals to this date, and we know because we've requested it and FOI'd them, none of the hospitals to date have provided any kind of risk assessment as to why these restrictions are ongoing. And we do know the HSE have requested same, and we're really hoping that the hospitals will now produce proper risk assessments so, you know, I mean, if, it, if there is a risk, then you do have to limit visiting. You know, we know that when there's a winter vomiting bug or when there's a flu pandemic, uh, people aren't allowed to visit maternity hospitals and everyone accepts that. But we need to know what the situation is on the ground and we need to know how it's changing. And if there's no risk assessment done, then we actually don't know that. We don't know what the risks are. Yeah, I saw one of the dads holding up a banner at one of the protests yesterday saying dads are not visitors. And I thought that it's true. Dads are not visitors. And they absolutely aren't. You know, it's like someone said to me the other day, Jesus, it's like having a marriage and one half of the person doesn't turn up for the ceremony. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I, thought, I thought that kind of, yeah, that kind of, that kind of puts it in context because, 
you know, someone who's going to be a father goes through a whole process and, and you know, or a, or a co-parent, not necessarily a father, goes through the whole process of pregnancy as well. Because, you know, the nine months, obviously a baby has to grow in nine months, but in that time, it enables you to get used to the idea that you are going to become a parent. You know, partners love to go to all of the visits. You know, most people get a small scan at every visit. You know, you hear the heartbeat, mm. you connect to your growing child. And the child that you're going to be the parent of, let's face it, for the rest of your life. And, you know, people say, especially partners, that they feel this huge sense of disconnect that they were not involved. And, you know, we had a really harrowing uh, letter from a partner. And very, very sadly, um, his baby died at 38 weeks in utero. And he said that, you know, whilst the staff were brilliant and they were very, you know, kind to them and, you know, uh, very understanding of their situation at the end, he felt that because he'd not attended any appointment, he'd not attended anything, that he felt his daughter had such a short life. And he didn't participate in pretty much all of that time. And he felt really robbed of that experience. Now, that's an extreme example. But it highlights how important the experience of becoming a parent in the nine months are for partners. Yeah, and I remember to talk, hearing with a, a chatting with a dad, uh, talking about his wife had a, a miscarriage. You know, it was early on in the uh, pregnancy, and she had to go in to have a procedure into the hospital, and he had to drop her. And he said, just watching her walk in with her little bag, he said it was just heartbreaking. He couldn't even go in with her, and it was just and the way he described watching his wife, who was utterly bereft, as was he. And she had to walk away with her little bag to go into the hospital to check in for the procedure. It's just, it was, and what he was in the car. It's, it was just, yeah, absolutely heartbreaking. And for first time mums, um, Carissa, it could be a frightening time because you don't know, no matter what anybody tells you, you don't know what to expect when you're in labour for the first time. No, absolutely. And uh, with, at least with second time or third time mums, you have some idea you know, whether whether you like the, the prospect or whether you don't, you do have some idea and you feel that you know from your previous experience, oh, I'd really, I really found that bit very hard and I'll have to get a bit of extra support for that. Whereas for a first-time family, it's all a journey into the unknown. So even without restrictions, it's a time that, you know, that, that there's an excitement, but there's also an anxiety. And even for some people, some people say, oh, I'm terrified, you know. Mm. So you've got this extra layer slapped onto that. And people really don't realize how much they're going to need their partners and how much they need the support of somebody. Because when you're having that early part of the labor, you know, as far as the the clinical decision making goes, they don't think you are in labor, and it's a horrible term, enough to, to warrant one of the delivery suites. But as far as you're concerned as the person, you're thinking, well, hold on a minute, I'm having contractions that are rocking me from head to toe. I think I'm in labor. And, you know, you're going to get those contractions in early labor for quite some time before you're going to gain admittance into a delivery suite. And it's very difficult because, you know, clinically, you're, you're, you're not really entitled to, to the pain relief measures that are available in the delivery suite. So you're relying in that time period on having a partner with you, rubbing your back, telling you you're okay, helping you with your breathing, um, letting you know that you're doing it, telling you you're great, uh, advocating for you, getting you water, all of these things. And to have to do those that that whole part of early labor, which is at least half or two thirds of it on your own, I think is a very difficult prospect for people. And then following the birth of baby, dad has to leave very soon afterwards, doesn't he? 
Absolutely. Um, so different hospitals, again, are, are imposing that, that, that restriction in different ways. Um, the, in general, uh, we're seeing that people have a minimum, are getting a minimum of 45 minutes. Um, and some units, if they're not so busy, you have individual variations. Somebody might get an hour or maybe even two hours. But there is a difficulty for people who have had cesarean births. And, you know, we have to put a shout out for our mums who are, are having cesarean births because they're becoming mums as well. And it can be difficult for them because, you know, there's more, there are more constraints in recovery areas. And they may find that their partners can only stay maybe for half an hour or 40 minutes. And if anybody needs support after you've gone through a medical procedure and someone's handed you a baby, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. that's the time that you need it. And that's been very difficult and distressing for mums who have given birth by cesarean. By the way, Christy, do you know how it's operated in other countries with COVID? Well, in England, for example, let's go to our nearest neighbour. Um, in England, these restrictions were in place for a certain length of time at the beginning, certainly running up to the summer last year. But then they employed rapid antigen testing. And partners just take a rapid antigen test and go in. There, there, there's none of these issues now in the UK that we have here. And I, I don't see why we're not doing the same. I, I can't understand why we haven't been solution-focused with this. Instead, we've been kind of you know, quite obstructive and and very busy telling people what can't be done instead of focusing on what can be done because it would be so much more helpful if we could just think of, you know, some solutions to get people through this whilst they're in a very vulnerable and transformative point in their lives. Tom uh, in Formoy, one of our listeners, well, he has huge sympathies for mums and dads and he accepts it is a wonderful experience to see your child come into the world. But what if the father went in, brought the virus in with him, spread it to the mother and to the baby, passed around other people in the wards? What would people be saying then? Well, obviously, you'd have to have, that's the point of the risk assessment is to ensure that you assess the risks properly. At the moment, for example, with the restrictions, partners are coming in to late labour. So they are walking up the steps anyway. They're mm. going into a delivery suite anyway and they are inact- interacting with staff and other patients anyway. They're just doing it maybe for four hours as opposed to seven hours. So, you know, that that's the, I mean, I'm not a professional risk assessment person, but that's how you would evaluate, well, is there any difference in risk between seven hours and six hours or seven hours and four hours? So I think that's why the risk assessments are so important, because, of course, nobody wants situations like that. But another option is to offer rapid antigen testing to partners, because that's what's happening in the UK. Mm. And you you have a protest, as I mentioned, uh, here in Cork this morning at CUMH. I believe you've had a big reaction to the planned protest. Ah, well, Cork, it is a rebel county, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody in Cork loves a good protest. I think people haven't been out with a banner for a long time. So um, we we were all laughing by the fact that we had the hugest reaction in Cork. And, uh, you know, social media was alive with everybody saying, this is my banner and I'm coming. And we were kind of saying, oh, hold on a minute. You can't have that many people because it has to be controlled. We don't want a rabble. And, you know, it's going to be hard, I think, to turn people away. But, uh, yeah, the protest is at 11 o'clock today outside CUMH. So if you're passing CUMH, give a beep on your, Toot on the your horn. car horn. Toot yeah. the horn. OK, and, uh, but it is, even though we've got the minister saying that these restrictions should be lifted, as I mentioned, Paul Reid of the HSE said it should be lifted, each individual hospital makes their own rules. Uh, that's what the Minister of Health is endorsing at the moment. And that's what we feel 
it doesn't bode well for this and it doesn't bode well in the future. And our pressure is now coming on to the minister to turn that around. OK. All right. Listen, uh, Carissa, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks a million. Good morning to you. Bye bye. That is uh, Carissa Lynch, uh, who is with the maternity group at Ames. 1850-333-103. Text just in saying, my brother in Hong Kong had a beautiful baby girl this morning. He's home, but wife and baby, they are still in the maternity hospital. They won't be home until Sunday. He won't see them until then. And it is accepted. So that's very similar to what's going on here. But I wonder how long he was allowed in Hong Kong to be in the hospital. Was he with his wife in active did he have to wait until active labour and how long did he get to stay after the baby was born but once he's left the hospital that's it no visitors in the hospital in Hong Kong which is very similar to what's been done here send on our congratulations to your brother in Hong Kong on the birth of his beautiful baby John Paul taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Toilets in Cork City's Central Library are to be made available to the general public on a pay per use basis, and it's going to happen within the coming weeks. To find out more, I'm joined by independent Cork City Councillor uh, Ken O'Flynn. Good morning, Chick Ken. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, well, you're, you're welcome. Firstly, has the pandemic really highlighted the lack of public toilets right across this country? Well, it has. And actually, when you do a little bit of digging into history, going back to the 1980s, we had probably about eight to ten um, public toilets available in the city. Um, and over that period of time, they've been closed and demolished quite, quite a few of them. Um, so yeah, there has been a, a need for public toilets. I think it has it has come to light uh, up and down the country. From people speaking on different radio programs around the country, you, you will see that we we all had a problem with um, public facilities. And of course, there was a huge challenge as well when it came to the pandemic about um, cleanliness of toilets as well. Mm. As you probably know, in the past we had um, self cleaning toilets on the Grand Parade, and uh, over these are the, the, the superlose. The superlose, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the the problem that we had there was uh, needles and the safety of the public. They had been closed, recleaned, closed, recleaned. Uh, parts had been replaced. Now to replace that entire unit, which is broken down, we've been given a cost of one hundred and ten thousand euros. So that's a non that's a non goer for the city, really. You know, we're better off opening up something else. So I suppose really the there's a a, a short term plan. A medium-term plan and a long-term plan. Okay, talk to me about the the, the, the short-term so, plan, one of which involves the library. Plan will be opening up the library toilets, making those available to the public. Opening up the um, North Main, the, the sorry, the South Main Street uh, toilets as well there, and various toilets in public buildings being made available. To and the they'll public. obviously be monitored. The fact that they're in a public building. Yeah. Look, the key here for us, if we've learned from anything in the past, we have to ensure that the public toilets are clean are safe uh, and, uh, you know, of a standard that, you know, if if I go into a restaurant, I expect the toilets to be cleaned and and monitored and maintained. There's no reason why the public realm toilets shouldn't be in the same position. And that's the key for us here in Cork City Council. We want to ensure that we have a safe and clean facility available there for the public. Um, Look, 
on the medium to the long term plans, we will be building or putting in public toilets, going out to public consultation with that. You'll have baby changing facilities, you'll have special disabled toilets with hoists, etc. Um, no, look, that's going to cost money. We're going to have to divert from budgets and we're going to have to make those facilities available. But as I, as you said correctly, in the short term plan is to get these public toilets in public buildings open, available to people. So they're not caught short. Um, and then go off into investigating after the more long term. But when but when you do decide on a long term strategy and you do decide to open uh, public toilets, Ken, how do we keep them clean and how do we stop antisocial behaviour in these that toilets? That means that we're employing somebody to maintain, look after and monitor. Um, and I think if you go to a lot of train stations around mainland Europe, continental Europe, you'll find that that happens with train stations. You'll find that it happens in certain countries better than others. Yeah. Um, but look, the key is to have, there's a, a large expense to that, but it's about maintaining it, keeping it right. Now, there's been several suggestions about either paying via credit card, via coins, or having an honesty box. And um, I think maybe an honesty box might be the way to go because sometimes you don't carry coins on you. Sometimes you're not in a position that you can spend money. Um, and th- those facilities have to be made available as well. They also will be looking at uh, putting in drinking fountains as well, so to ensure that people have access to uh, fresh drinking water as well, you know. And so what, what are your thoughts on the vacant Hilser building being turned into public toilets at the English market? Well, look, I think that's been misunderstood or, you know, blown out of proportion. You know, we're not going to use the entire building as a public toilet. Uh, that will go to public consultation. And the entire idea behind that is that maybe part of it could be used as public toilets as well, you know. Um, look, we're, I'd like to see something more elaborate go into that building that show that's a showcase for the English market. Um, I think the building is big, big enough to facilitate toilets, perhaps to the side or something like that as well, you know. There are existing toilets actually in the uh, English market. I think the English market conversation has to be a bigger conversation because we need to replace the roof in the English market as well. And that means shutting part of it down for a while or, or something like that. So there's a bigger question and there's a bigger conversation needs to be had about updating uh, the English market. Yeah, because the traders aren't too happy about the idea no, of public toilets in the Hills Jewellers. I, I was in there yesterday and I was okay. buying hampocks and I was buying uh, fish off, off I call it Pat the Fish but Pat O'Connell yeah. but, um, He know, was very vocal Yeah I was I was chatting to Paul his brother and I was chatting to uh, you know you go through the English market about 10 people call you you know um, but look um, Did you allay their fears? I, I, I think so I think so I think there was a lot of miscommunication or a lot of drama in the press in the, in the written in the written press Um about the building but look it's a long term plan If w- nothing will be done on that building until we have agreement and public consultation with traders and the general public that's the reality there and you know we may be moving facilities here there and everywhere before we'd even look at that and you could be looking maybe three or four years down the line before we'd even look at that idea the important thing now is that during the pandemic we have a problem there isn't access to public toilets as the country is opening up we now will reassess uh, what's going on, what's the need. Um, we are a purple flag city. It's something that I've been flagging for a number of years that we do need pod urinals uh, out there um, late at night to facilitate people that are coming out of nightclubs, coming out of um, late night bars, etc. on the Washington Street Strip. That's something that's going to be assessed as well as these bars and facilities 
uh, open up and once we all have our jab and things are opened up again, you know, and we're back to the new normal, uh, that has to be assessed. But I suppose really what we're doing here in the first six months is we're, we're opening up public facilities that there is no reason why they can't be opened up. They can be opened up and turned out very, very quickly in a hygienic and, and well-maintained manner. Okay. And getting that in, getting that done, and then we can reassess what's the need after that. Okay. Look, the, the environment is changing, as we know, because of outdoor dining, um, pubs opening up. Uh, and once they all open bar. up, once hotels and restaurants and coffee shops where we can go in and sit down, there will be toilets available to there people. Will be and it won't be... If you're, if you're a patron, if you're a patron, of the of the restaurant and bar, we won't have um, the pressure that we we've had during the pandemic. Okay. Look, I, I, the other thing there is that we are going to be engaging with businesses about making their toilets facilities available to the public as well. In other words, that there's not a big sign saying you have to buy a, a customer or, or whatever yeah. before you use the toilets. Um, so you know, we're, we're we'll, we will be hoping to get a lot of goodwill from businesses and speaking to local businesses in the areas. In particular in the Centre Island, they're very open to that as well. Okay. All right, Ken, listen, good to talk to you. Thank you for Likewise, that. Patricia, bye bye. That is Cork City Independent Councillor Ken O'Flynn. Let me stay on the topic of toilets because Catherine uh, joins me. Uh, good morning, Catherine. Good morning. You were in Clon and needed to spend a penny. I did. What happened? I spent, <laughs> I, I spent 50 cents. Um, is this a I super loo? This absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. It was. I, I didn't notice. I was driving around. I have a kidney problem and I really was in a bad way. And obviously with the pandemic and stuff, you couldn't really go into anyone's house. And I was originally from Clannacilty, so I would have had family there, but I really didn't need to, you know, want to be going in. Anyway, um, someone directed me and said there was this loo over by the fire station. I went over and it was 50 cents and the, the door slided open. It was spotlessly clean. The toilet was spotless. The, there was um, toweling. There was toilet roll. I think there's, I don't know how long it stays, you know, that you could stay in there. But the experience was just fantastic. Absolutely. Just be able to go in, spend a penny. It was spotlessly clean. There was sanitizer. There was towels. There was toilet roll, as I say. And I can't see any reason why any single town. I would be getting rid of big buildings that are dark to go into. And there's people, you know, using and whatever undesirable things happening like public loose. This was well lit and you know it, it And sparklessly clean. Spotlessly clean. Yeah. Absolutely. Because that's that's clean. the one thing you want is the spotlessly clean. But any of those those super loose are self cleaning. They clean after everybody goes in or out. Oh my so God, you you would at fifty cent good value you'd even have paid I would have given I would have given a euro. Well done. Well done. <laughs> okay, listen thanks for that Catherine. Mind yourself. No thanks for joining us. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. We were talking about the protests, actually, which is now underway at CUMH. This is the protests that have been held at maternity hospitals all over the country to uh, highlight how the COVID restrictions are affecting patients and partners. Partners are not allowed in until the mum is in active labour and then they have to leave shortly afterwards and there's no visitors allowed uh, and all of that. And a lot of mums finding it very distressing and really need their partners with them. Well, here's a mum who has an understanding, I suppose, and just 
just wants people to be a little bit patient. Hi, Patricia. I lost my baby some 42 years ago at what was then the Urnville Maternity Hospital. My husband wasn't allowed in at the time with me and that's the way it would have been 42 years ago. Mums in labour went in, had their babies and that was it. Anyway, this woman lost her baby. I was then put in a ward with seven other mothers, an eight-bedded ward, but the seven other mothers had had their babies after losing my son. And you're talking 42 years ago, you stayed in hospital longer after having a baby than you do uh, today, for sure. Listener says it was just so cruel. We are in the middle of a pandemic, so please, to all new mothers, I say, ask them to stop and think. If someone comes in there with COVID, at the end of the day, CUMH is the only maternity hospital for Cork City and County, so please be mindful of the other mothers and their babies. If there was an outbreak at the hospital, it would be catastrophic. So somebody having an understanding as to why the management at CUMH have put these very tight restrictions in uh, place. Your story is utterly heartbreaking. I I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like. You lose your baby and then can you, and of course 42 years ago there wouldn't have been scans or anything so you went in expecting to come out with this little bundle of joy but then to be placed in in eight bedded wards. Again it would have been the norm at the time and to be in there with all the other mums and their babies and looking at all of the mums and for the other mothers as well. I could not imagine being in there celebrating the birth of a child and knowing that the woman in the bed next to me had lost her baby. It must have been hell for the other seven mothers as well just at least those kind of days are gone and and that I, I assume that would never happen today but it's just heartbreaking but thank you for sharing your story with us at 0862 103 103 and a Mitchell stand listener says Patricia can you tell me are all the shops and stores now open can you just go in and shop as uh, normal no for this week it's click and collect and it's by appointment. Now, I was driving in Mallowtown and a lot of the shops sitting in the front doors are open. Most of them are like a little table outside and, and whatever. And there appear to be people inside in the shop. I'm assuming it's done either click and collect. People have ordered and they're going in to collect the item or it's done by uh, appointment. But it's from next Monday, the 17th of May, that all of the shops will open. Now, we will be, it'll be the very same as it was before we went into this lockdown, if we can remember that far back, nearly four and a half months ago now that there'll only be so many allowed into shops and there'll be a queuing system if you get to a shop and it's very busy but no from next Monday all of the shops will open and you'll be able to potter around and and, and, and there's nothing like pottering around even though I've heard retailers are saying that people's shopping habits are very different and I suppose we still are in a pandemic and we still have to remember the COVID hasn't gone away and while more and more people are continuing to get vaccinated which is fantastic but we've, we're, we're a few months away from everyone being vaccinated and getting to the so-called herd immunity we're certainly many months away uh, from that so therefore you, we still have to remember all the social distancing and the mask wearing and the hand sanitising and all of that but I've heard retailers say that the way we shop seems to have changed. People go into shops now and they know what they want. That day of browsing. You know when you're into a shop do I really want anything in here? I should let me go in and have a look. Those kind of days are gone. So people have a tendency to know what they want. They go in, they get it and they're out. And that obviously from the retailer's point of view, if it's a small shop, is good news because people are in, do your business and you're gone and it allows the next person to uh, go in. But from next Monday, all of the non-essential retail shops will be open to the general public. And then on people, particularly people in North and West Cork getting text messages today. Firstly, they're delighted to be getting a text message to say they're getting their vaccination, but not 
everyone is happy about the fact that the HSC contacted us this morning to say that about 2,000 people from North and West Cork will be getting appointments for this weekend but they'll have to go to the city to get their vaccines and we're hearing from some of those people today. Somebody said, why are people complaining? They should be just glad to get the vaccine. People are never happy, says this texter. And then we've had people when I mentioned that some are worried about going to the city and will there be long delays and will they be queuing for hours because those vaccination centres will be very busy. Nora in McCroom was on and said for anybody worried about going to the city for a vaccine don't worry at all says our Nora in McCroom she went to Porky Cueve I faced no delays at all it was very well run thank you for that uh, Nora and John in I don't know where John was contacting us from but he said he was in City Hall the other city vaccination centre he got his vaccine last week he said I was in and out within an hour and that was including the 15 minutes wait time so he said no delays there at all some of your texts in Eileen said I went for a vaccine last Sunday morning in City Hall just to warn people there was no parking anywhere so people need to bear that in mind and plan where you're going to do your parking I found it all a little bit crazy, says Riley, but no doubt she's absolutely delighted that she has received her uh, vaccine. Somebody else says, Patricia, no delays at all if people get an appointment for Porky Cueve. Perfectly run and absolutely lovely staff. Thank you for that. And Nicola was back on to us. Nicola was our statistician who was on to us yesterday and she'd actually sent on a photograph of her notebook with all of her dates on it and she had worked out based on close family members like her siblings and brothers-in-laws the years they were born and when they got their appointment date and she was working it out because she's the youngest of them all and she was trying to work out on a guesstimate when she would be getting her appointment and she had worked out based on the gaps between the years of the people in her family who'd got an appointment. She had worked out that she would be due to get her vaccination on Monday the 24th of May. Well, she's been back and she said, I've never been so thankful to get my statistics wrong. My youngest brother-in-law was born in 1956 and he got his vaccination yesterday in Mallow. I did a quick recalculation last night and got quite excited to expect my vaccine on Sunday. Lo and behold, I got my appointment this morning and I am due a vaccine next Sunday, but I'm not going to get it in Mallow as I thought, because that's where the rest of the family went. I'm going to be getting it in Pork Equive. I might now get to see my beautiful children, their partners and my six precious grandchildren in August after all. What a birthday present that would be. Well done uh, Nicola and the best of luck with your vaccine on Sunday and that's what everybody looks forward to. It's that reconnecting with people and the people who've missed out on much loved grandchildren and the hugs of a grandchild there is absolutely nothing like it uh, thank you for that Hi uh, John and Mill Street Hi Patricia I'm just wondering my mum got her first Covid jab yesterday in Tralee and probably will have to go back there for the second jab yeah as far as I know anyone when you go to a vaccination centre it's the same vaccination centre you call back to for the second one now says John I'm starting to wonder when she gets the injection every year will she be getting the injection every year like the flu jab and if so does that mean every year she's going to have to go back to Tralee or will she be getting it from her local doctor thanking you says John in Mill Street everything I've read up about the Covid vaccine And it does look like COVID isn't going to go away. So it does look like it will become an annual booster shot, a little bit like the flu jab. Anything I have read, John, leads me to believe it will be to your local GP you will be going. Because what will ultimately happen with the COVID jab eventually 
Uh, like it will always be there but it won't be there at the same level it's there at the moment it'll be the same as people who get the flu jab the at-risk groups go forward for the flu jab and I imagine we will get to the stage where it will be the same with a, a COVID jab it won't be everybody will be opting to get it but it will be the at-risk groups but anything that I've certainly seen would lead me to believe it will be your local GP will be operating it. That's just a guesstimate at the moment, but that's what what I'm assuming will happen. But only time will tell. But certainly for your mum's second shot, it's back to Tralee. She will be going. Now we're going to be talking, thank you for that, uh, 1850 We're going to be talking with Quilta in this hour about dumping of items in the forestry areas and the amount of money that they have to spend uh, cleaning it up. Um, and we're going to be talking about that in a moment. But Durr in Bandon was on to say people in Bandon very angry this morning. Somebody dumped a big bag of rubbish on Begley's Lane overnight. Now it looks like it was domestic rubbish, someone's household rubbish. The cats and the dogs got at it overnight. So it was some stage during the night the bag was, was dumped. The bag then got torn asunder by animals and the absolute mess on Begley's Lane this morning. The only thing is, according to Durr in Bandon, whoever dumped it, it's a gentleman's name, they left a bill with a name and address on it. Now, interesting to see what will happen there. And I'm assuming that the council have been contacted and the council have been made aware of the bill with the person's name and address on it. On the same subject, Jim says, Patricia, talking about dumping household appliances in the countryside, I wonder if the people who dumped them could be tracked down by, say, the serial number on the appliance. Surely a record of who bought it. The reason I'm thinking of this was I recently bought a tumble dryer and the fella I brought it from in the shop took my name and address and details. So, do I take it that he also took down the serial number of the tumble dryer and therefore it could be traced back to me or certainly traced back to the person who bought it day one, which in this case would be Jim. Of course, if it was sold on, there would be a bit of a problem there. But do electrical shops have a record of who bought what? Now, yeah, I know I bought, I'm trying to think what I bought lately in an electrical shop and I had to give a name and address as well, which is a kind of a new thing, isn't it? And I don't know if it's to do with, I didn't get any indication that they were taking a serial number or not. Maybe we'll check in with an electrical store to find out why do they ask for a person's name and address. It certainly is a great suggestion, Jim, if you there was somehow a record kept of a serial number with the name and address and then if something did get dumped you would be able to find out exactly who purchased it. Now as you say would you then be able to prove it was they dumped it? I don't know but it certainly would be another tool in the armoury for the council in trying to trace people or in the case we're going to be talking about this morning Quilta in trying to trace down who has dumped it but I go back to the point it just frustrates me that why they don't take it to a civic community site where anything with a plug, anything electrical, gets recycled. Guess what, folks? It gets recycled for free. C103 Jobs. West Co Windows. They're offering a paid summer internship. It'll run for 10 weeks. It may suit students of quantity surveying, construction management, are a business. Tool hire shop managers wanted. That's for work in the Bantry area. You need to have some experience with machinery and construction industry. An office administrator is wanted. It's a part-time position. It's in Cork City. Good typing skills are needed here. And experienced laminator machine operators are wanted for allied profiles 
that's in Mallow. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. And I suggest you go online. We have a huge amount of jobs available up on our website. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Court today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086 103 Now this Friday is Verbal Dyspraxia Awareness Day. And to outline what the condition is and how it affects children and indeed their families. I'm joined by Evelyn Murphy-Byrne who set up a group called Finding Charlie's Voice and in a couple of minutes I'm also going to be joined by Canturk mum Julie Sweeney whose six-year-old son Connor also suffers from uh, verbal dyspraxia. But Evelyn joins me first. Good morning to you, Evelyn. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well and and you're very welcome once again on the programme. I suppose, can you start by explaining to people what verbal dyspraxia is? Sure. Thank you so much again for having us on. Our Um, pleasure. Verbal dyspraxia is um, one particular type of speech sound disorders. It is uh, relatively rare and it's a lifelong neurological disorder, which is centred around the difficulty in the motor planning of speech. And simply put, that means by the time the message travels from the brain to all of the organs that are necessary for speech, so like the tongue, the lips and the soft palate, what comes out can often be quite different and in many cases unintelligible. We know that it impacts between one to two children in every thousand worldwide, although we do not know what those figures are like in Ireland, but one can only assume that it's more or less the same. Um, And yes, so it is quite an invisible um, but massively debilitating um, condition for any child or family to live with. Is it very difficult to diagnose? It is. uh, I mean, I think we're getting better. Um, I mean, we have to remember that many speech and language therapists are in general um, trained to be generalists. So they will go to college and they will study everything from paediatric to geriatric. And speech sound disorders is just one small portion of that very complicated area and actually very fascinating area of speech and language therapy. Um, And so to diagnose verbal dyspraxia has to occur actively in therapy. So a child has to be attending therapy with a speech and language therapist. They need to have a certain degree of language so that a speech and language therapist can assess those errors in the speech Um, It's a dynamic assessment, so therefore all of the other type of speech sound disorders needs to be ruled out before it is diagnosed. And unfortunately, the experience within um, Ireland of um, verbal dyspraxia is not where it could or should be, although that is changing. Um, And there are many, many speech and language therapists in Ireland who are very experienced in the arena of verbal dyspraxia. But many speech and language therapists will go through their entire career having never come across a child with verbal dyspraxia either. So I think we have to be a little bit patient and kind when we're dealing with speech and language therapists as well. But, you know, um, we're hoping that the IFRT are going to change that and University of Limerick under Dr. Aileen Wright um, will be publishing some um, first research actually ever in Ireland on verbal dyspraxia and hoping that we'll have some training programmes in place. Um, in the next coming weeks, actually, for CPD for those on verbal dyspraxia as well. 
When I was reading up about it yesterday, uh, Evelyn, in, in advance of uh, you and Julie joining me, the one thing that went to my mind was we know there are waiting lists for assessment yeah. of needs. Yeah. And then even if somebody gets a diagnosis, a child gets uh-huh. a diagnosis, there's waiting lists then to assess therapies. I mean, th- that must be having a devastating effect on the child. Absolutely. And I mean, for any child, no matter what their disability is or what disability that they're living with, um, early intervention we know works and early intervention is critical. And it is particularly critical for children who are presenting with early speech and language communication needs. And in particular in the area of verbal dyspraxia, this is not something that can correct itself on its own. So it needs the support of a speech and language therapist. It needs high dosage of speech and language therapy and it needs to be intensive. So in order for a child to learn how to speak, because effectively this is what we're dealing with, we're dealing with children who have not acquired speech. They do not know what to do with their mouth and their tongue. They do not know what shapes to, to make or to form to be able to um, to generate intelligible speak. And you and I speak, of course, without even thinking about it, um, which brings you back to the whole um, conversation that your parents may have said to you, you know, when you were younger, think before you speak. So children with verbal dyspraxia do actually have to think before they speak. They have to plan those movements because they're not normal. So not providing that early intervention provides a detrimental, it is a detrimental impact on the children and they simply do not get the dosage. And Julie will tell you her story with Connor. We have the same situation with our son, Charlie. He's received um, five speech and language therapy sessions, direct speech and language therapy sessions from the HSC since referral in 2015. So that's six years he's received five speech and language therapy sessions. Just not enough. And then you you set up Finding Charlie's Voice in 2019. Just to remind us why you did that. Yeah. So, I mean, initially, I mean, I had set up um, a parent support group on, on Facebook and it was a private parent support group to try and connect with other parents because I hadn't met actually another parent whose child had verbal dyspraxia, let alone even heard of it before, you know, we, we got the diagnosis ourselves. And I wanted to connect with other parents and find out how their children were going or how what they were doing. And then we wanted to sort of publicly advocate our story and, and try and make some sort of a difference. So... We officially launched, I guess, Finding Charlie's Voice, you know, as, as a limited company um, to support children with speech and language communication needs. Yes, we have um, a primary focus on verbal dyspraxia, but this is for any child or family that has a child with um, any type of speech and language communication need. Um, I have met with Minister um, Madigan. I've met with Minister Rabbit to advocate for speech and language communication needs within education, within disability. Uh, and we will continue to do that. Um, Finding Charlie's Voice will continue to do that to try and speak for those that have yet to find their own voice. Well done, well done. And a, a simple thing. Tell me about these communication boards yes. that oh, you're distributing to primary schools. Yeah, this has been um, absolutely amazing. I mean, I guess some people would blame COVID for, for a lot of negativity. I think COVID allowed us to pivot a little bit. We had plans in 2020 that were put on hold because of COVID. And as a result, then um, we moved to developing these communication boards. And communication boards are effectively um, a form of pictures that are on a board that allow children to be able to point to them if they are having trouble finding their voice. And this is not just for the autistic community or for those that have speech and language communication needs. It's for any child that may struggle at a point in time to be able to have their needs and wishes met. And so these communication boards, um, I mean, get from concept to copyright to completion. It took nine months. You know, this all started last June when I 
saw um, a board in for the, in real life, I guess, in Leahy's Farm down in Cork. I mean, of course, I knew what communication boards were, and, and I set about then trying to get these communication boards rolled out. And to date, I mean, we have now rolled out nearly 165 boards, reaching 30,000 children. We have them in something like 19 out of the 26 counties in Ireland. Fantastic. Um, so it really has been amazing. And what has been fantastic is that what we have noticed that early on when we were ro- ro- uh, rolling out these boards, um, certainly the first tranche when we um, delivered 86 boards fully donated to schools based on from a fundraiser that we had done, that 89% of those boards were going out to primary school settings. And then when number two sort of uh, tranche of boards went out, so it was about 40 or 50 boards went out in the second tranche, that number sort of was 60% primary and 37% went to the early years. And again, now we see with, with um, number three sort of rollout of these boards, it's 58% primary and 25% early years. So we really see the early years educators coming on board as well and recognising that need to support children in early years in their early communication development and to ensure that every child has a voice and also to use it as a massive opportunity to, I guess, inform and educate other children that do not have any trouble with communication about the privileges to be able to have a voice and the yeah, privilege yeah. of being able so to good, speak. That's a great point. And you've got evidence that these boards, they're, they're a simple concept, but they work. They work. And you know what? The feedback that we've been getting has been phenomenal. Feedback from principals saying that they are recognising um, communication in children that had never communicated, that had never attempted to communicate, that are using these boards to indicate that they want to play with another child. One principal told me that a child had not played with a single other person in the school since last September. And when the board was installed, went over and pointed to the symbols, me, play, hide and seek, and pointed to another child. And the other child went, yeah, of course. Now, this child had English as an additional language. So it wasn't a child that was autistic or couldn't speak. It was a child that actually couldn't find their voice. These boards have been used by children who were a a bit cross with somebody in in the yard but didn't want to tell on them. So they went over and pointed at a symbol to say that they were angry and that somebody had pushed them. And, of course, that allowed for a conversation to be had about managing, you know, your feelings and about, you know, trying to sort of work out any, you know, any sort of disagreements that might be in the yard. Um, but also it is just giving opportunity. And, you know, we talk about the Epson Act and about equal opportunity to education and equal opportunity to healthcare. But, you know, and of course we know that is not the reality on the ground. No. That those who are living with a disability are limited in their opportunity and we still don't have the same opportunity for children with any type of disability in Ireland, the same as another child that, that is not living with a disability. OK, stay there and let me bring in uh, Julie Sweeney uh, from uh, Canturk. Good morning to you, Julie. Good morning. Now, now, the communication boards that Evelyn is speaking about, your little son, Connor goes to Skullgovernaton in Mallow and he's got access to one of these boards. Yes, they would have received two boards actually um, as part of Evelyn's donation um, initially in, in the first tranche of boards that went out. Um, and again, it's just, Patricia, it's all about inclusion. Um, you know, speech and language communication needs can be a hidden disability um, for so many children. And to be able to, as Evelyn said there, access your voice, you know, for any child, um, is is huge. Um, Connor has probably actually moved beyond communication boards now at this stage, but I do recognise the value of them. Um, and as Evelyn kind of alluded to there, the value in early years education is, you know, crucial here. It's it's, it's really really important asset to any early 
early educator, I would believe, to have a communication board on site. Um, but it's it's not, you know, it just it opens the conversation for children, Patricia. Yeah, that's a, um, that's exactly what it does. Now, I was reading your piece that you did with our own uh, Martino Donoghue in the uh, in the Echo um, about um, verbal dyspraxia and about uh, Connor in particular. You're in. Um, I, I got frustrated reading it in the situation that Connor finds himself in. He's in a special class are getting yes. special speech and language. But he can only be in that class for two years. Yes. So the NCSE um, oversee all the, the special classes um, in, in various schools and special schools around the country. And people might be familiar with ASD classes. Um, so they're less familiar with language classes. So they are some language classes, not enough of them, around the country. And we're very lucky and extremely grateful to have one on our doorstep, um, pretty much in in Mallow. So a child who has um, speech and language communication deficits or needs can apply for for a language class. It's usually on the recommendation of their their speech language therapist. Um, And you have to go through, um, you know, various assessments and be deemed eligible for the language class. So Connor was in that position, thankfully, a couple of years ago. And we got access to the language class. And you do your normal, in in our case, it's a normal junior infant programme, the same as every other, um, you know, child starting school and junior infants. Connor did the same programme, both with the support of a speech and language therapist who is assigned to the language class and comes in three times a week and will assist the children in the language class. There, there are seven children per class, and they can get individual therapy. They can get group therapy. The, the speech language therapist will leave the teacher very heavily as well. So everything that's done in class supports speech language work that's been done that week. You know, even the poems and the rhymes they would learn in primary school and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really, really intensive supportive environment and it's absolutely wonderful. You know, the progress children make in language class is phenomenal. Um, And Connor would have started that language class at age five, into junior infants, couldn't even say his name to introduce himself to, to, to teacher. That's how severe his speech language communication needs were. Um... And he's now at the point of of being able to communicate his primary needs. He can, you know, tell us about his day. He can join in a conversation, Patricia, you know. Which he Um, wasn't able to do without that help. But because of the pandemic, he would have been out of school for a large chunk of last year and this year. Yes. So because the speech language therapist is HSE employed, unfortunately, with COVID hit last year, that HSE therapist was you know, I mean, the health service was in crisis. So they were redeployed into COVID-related duties. So actually, school was operational, you know, from from a remote learning point of view, and we were getting work from school. Now, the the speech-language therapist did go above and beyond and and went out of her way to give us some assistance, as much as what she could do. But I presume that was off, you know, in her own time. Um, Would have sent a few emails and, and checked in with Connor. But... Essentially, the service was withdrawn from the school because she was redeployed. Um, now, we we fought against it this year and when, again, schools remained closed after Christmas for in-person learning. Now, schools, you know, we were, we were all remote learning at home and, and remote teaching. Um, so this time, what was different was the, the SLT therapist was retained by the, by the school right. and was able to do online 
you know, the, the, the online Zoom calls with the children and, and, that work? and offer therapy. To a certain extent, yes, it was better than nothing. Um, it depends on the individual children. Some children thrive and they can work really well with online therapy and other children can't. Connor was a little bit, little bit of both. Um, you know, some days he did really well and other days... It's, it's, it's a bit hit and miss. It's a bit hit and miss. But when he finishes, when he finishes in June, is is he finished with that additional language classes? Yeah. So what happens now in June is Connor basically maxes out his placement. So according to the circular that governs language classes, a child is offered a place for one year. It can be reviewed at the end of that year. They may be offered a second year. So in our case, that's what happened. But it is capped then at two years. So at the end of two years, no matter what your needs are, and Connor's needs are quite severe, and I've been told, yes, of course, he would benefit from staying on. But however, the circular is a cap of two years. So he will exit um, language class and transition back to mainstream, to our local primary school, and will go from a class of seven with really intensive support into a class of 29. And hopefully we will have an SNA to support him. Not guaranteed yet. The application is being worked on. Um, but as it currently stands, he's entering into a class of 20, 29, you know, and... and I'm sure, you know, and I, I have no doubt about the school are going to do great work and support him as best they can. But it is with that caveat, as best they can. He won't have the support that he, he He's been need. getting for the last um, mm. two years. Does, do, and I put this to both of you, do, do your boys get frustrated when they're trying to communicate their needs? Evelyn? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely see that with Charlie. I mean, I guess less so as his language has come along. Um, we're in a little slightly different situation to Julie um, in that Charlie is not in a language unit and does not have access to the language unit at the minute. Um, and so he sits in a mainstream classroom with 24 other children with a lot to say and no means to say it. So we have not had that that same sort of level of support of being able to access a language unit. But um, Charlie is now seven. I think he's about six months older than, than Connor. We've certainly seen the frustration has gone down a little bit as the language has come up. But, I mean, every single day is, is a game of charades or Pictionary. And, and that is the, the truth. And at some point, that must be extremely difficult. And it is impossible for any of us to really understand what that might feel like unless one day we decided to put a big piece of sticky paper across our own mouths and decided to try and communicate using mm. gestures or facial expressions. Um, and unless you do that, there is absolutely no way that we can understand what it must feel like to have a very large and and, and almost, um, I suppose, um, excessive bank of, of language in his head. And, and we don't have any challenges, thankfully, or not thankfully, but we just don't have any challenges with an intellectual disability with Charlie on top of having to deal with this. So he understands everything, um, but just cannot get the words out. So what we're seeing now is less frustration, but what we do see is the shrugging of the shoulders and almost, now he can't say it doesn't matter, but it's almost like that defeatist sort oh, of that's uh, heartbreaking. You know, response. And that's even oh, worse. Oh my God, that, so, that is heartbreaking. Yeah, what you get I, is you're not listening. You're yeah. not listening. And I'm like, I am listening, but I, I, I just I don't, don't understand. understand. I don't I understand you, so show me. Um, but then we get into, is it a place? Is it a picture? Is it a person? Is it food? You know, 
And imagine if that was you, Trisha, every day. People Just trying to have a basic conversation. Basic conversation. Or if you, they're looking for something. They're and and something, Julie, yeah. with, with Connor, how, how does he get on? Does he get frustrated? Uh, no, Connor's works really hard to communicate. Patricia, Just so he, bless you his know, heart. for somebody with no voice, he is a great communicator, and yeah. obviously the voice is coming now. But yes, it is hard for him, and he has to work incredibly hard. You know, to to just try to get those words that he does have out and it takes an awful lot of concentration and effort. He's exhausted at the end of a school day um, you know so it just requires so much focus and so much attention and I suppose my concern is he's leaving that very supportive environment where he hasn't had to be frustrated because he is so supportive and when he transitions out I mean his language deficits are not resolved at this time he will continue to need speech and language support and when he transfers from his supportive environment now in language class he will transfer back into the HSE system so he's in a little bubble at the moment and when he transfers out of that and and will go back into the system um, I I genuinely don't know what I'm facing into he's moving into a new team this new Children's National Disability Network team Um, you know it's the, the information coming to parents is quite sparse, I'll be honest about it. Um, I, I know where he's going. I haven't had any formal communication from them. Well, he'll um, come on to the remission St. Joseph's, will he, in Charlotte? He will, yeah. he will. So that's where it's going to operate out of. But, I, I ha- you know, as at this moment of time, I don't know what access to services he will have. My concern is, um, Patricia, I know a child who left language class in 2019. Now, 2019, June 2019, there was no such thing as COVID. It wasn't in our vocabulary. And that child left language class in 2019 with the recommendation of further speech and language therapy and, and, and requires further support and ongoing support. And to date, that child hasn't gotten any SLT support. Yeah, that's what and I was that saying. That's what I was, yeah, that's, and that's, the waiting yeah, that's list is so incredible. incredible. It's incredible. Um, the waiting lists are, are exorbitantly high he's leaving um, an, a very intensive supportive environment. You know, Evelyn used this, the, the analogy earlier on about kind of like the GP and the hospitals and, and it's such a narrow, focused area. And I would put it like that. Connor's currently in, in a bubble. He's in, on life support, if you want, for SLT. He's receiving very intensive support. And in June, he's effectively going to get his, you know, out the door, go home, look after yourself. It's just not and good enough. It's just we, not good enough. It, it really isn't. Um, and Evelyn, you, it's, as I mentioned at the outset, it's, it's a verbal dyspraxia day uh, this Friday. Uh, how are you hoping to mark it? Well, um, Julie has been doing amazing work in Cork and she, um, being the warrior mum that she is, <laughs> and um, I, I do have to say this, I'm so blessed. I think Julie and I would both say that we feel very privileged to be in this community of parents um, and advocates for speech and language communication needs. But Julie has been doing Trojan work in terms of getting us our Light Up for Blue campaign off the ground um, for Friday. OK, let's, let, let's revert to Julie. Who, where, who, where's, who's going to be lit up on Friday, Julie? Uh, well, we have to, to confirm so far, and they're still rolling in, I'm glad to, to say. So uh, Blackrock Castle in Cork is lighting up in blue. The Quad in UCC is lighting up in blue. Dublin Castle, um, we have three confirmed in Monaghan, we have Tralee confirmed, 
Killarney confirmed. The county hall there is lighting up. Um, just before I came on the phone to you, I had an email from the Rock of Cashel in Tipperary. They're confirmed as lighting up in blue. So we are hitting you know, various countries the country. And this is all about creating awareness, Patricia. Um, you mentioned there the article that was in the Echo yesterday and my phone was hopping last night and I had people contacting me, you know, um, through social media and so forth where, where the story was, was, the article was being shared. And just to drive home, this is not about, you know, fighting for, for Connor. This is fighting for awareness for every child with speech and language communication needs. I had two mums um, contact me last night. Um, one of them actually quite local to me that wasn't aware of, she's, her child has now received a, a diagnosis as well. And she has, you know, what she said to me last night when she reached out to me was she just felt so alone on the journey. She didn't know where to get information from. Um, she found, she was, she was just on her own. She yeah. had no support network. Um, very sporadic SLT intervention and especially as well as with COVID, it's, it's you know, probably been a harder journey than, than I would have gone through with Connor back in the earlier years. Um, so really, really incredibly lonely journey and this is what the Awareness Day is all about just trying to reach out. You know, reach out to families. They're not on their own. And it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. Verbal dyspraxia is the Awareness Day on Friday. But, you know, whatever the speech and language communication needs, there is a growing community of support um, online, especially Finding Charlie's Voice is doing huge work in that. And I would encourage any family, any parent who's out there and who's worried or who's on that journey and they feel a little bit alone at the moment, to reach out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Listen, you're both fantastic uh, women and your your boys are lucky to have you as mams, I'll, t- I'll tell you that. And I'm assuming when COVID isn't around, have you guys met up? Because, um, Evelyn, no. you're, you're in Lucan and Julie, you're in Cantor. Yeah. Have you actually physically met? No, no. we haven't. Oh! And this is, this, we cannot wait for, for that moment, actually. And we're, we are like kindred spirits. I'm yeah. recently a Cork woman, as you know. So, um, but as Julie said, this Friday, you know, we've come together for this. Um, Julie is one of the directors of Finding Charlie's Voice. So, like, um, you know, she's come on board to help us. Like, cannot do this by ourselves. This is um, a group of us coming together. So May the 14th, please wear blue. Tag us in Finding Charlie's Voice. If you are a business, if you are a school, get in touch. These boards are really um, affordable, um, Patricia. They are only... 55 euro asking for a cost of the donation just a donation to cover the cost it's only 55 euro we have donated loads of these but we don't have a bottomless pit um so if anybody wants to get in touch finding charlie's voice at gmail.com we really need your continued support we need everybody to ensure that every child is given a voice and given an equitable access to education um so we really thank you for your support and um, wear blue we hope you'll be wearing blue will indeed will indeed <laughs> and tag us on finding charlie's voice yeah, communi- communication shouldn't be a gift. It, no. it 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 should be a right. The bare minimum, it's a right. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, you're fantastic women. Keep keep Thank fighting the good fight. And thanks a million for joining us on the program. Thank, Thank you so much. much. Good morning to you. Bye, morning. Uh, Evelyn Murphy Byrne and uh, Julie Sweeney, both mums of little boys suffering with uh, verbal dyspraxia. Uh, think of all of those kids uh, this Friday, which is Verbal Dyspraxia Awareness Day. Eighteen fifty three 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 one zero three. Our lines are open. Court today on C one zero three with John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk; they walk the walk. Cmig.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
somebody reacting to the interview that I did with the Julian Evelyn talking about their two boys and verbal dyspraxia that I take it many people I certainly hadn't heard of verbal d- dyspraxia until last year when they had an awareness day and I started looking into it and it's uh, for the children that are diagnosed with it it's just devastating to want to be able to speak and to not be able to communicate is just shocking. It's just, it's shocking. And, and I know, I mean, I experienced it, don't I, in our own household uh, with my, with Marcia being deaf blind. And over the years, I've often been asked if there's one thing I could, you know, would you give her back her sight? Or would you give, you could wave a magic wand? Would you give her back her hearing? You know, which disability would you remove from her? And I straight away always give the same answer, her ability to communicate. I would just, if I had a wish in the morning, it would be that she was either able to speak or in some way, uh, communicate through some you know really positive sign that we could all understand it's one of the most and actually when Evelyn was talking about uh, Charlie her little boy giving up it's one of the things I find most heartbreaking because Marsh is great at trying to communicate and we use objects of reference and we've limited uh, sign but obviously she can't see you signing back so it's, it, it does become uh, problematic but uh, I watch her sometimes when she's really trying to communicate and she's fantastic at communicating and trying to get the message through to me but sometimes I just can't work out what she's trying to tell me or what she's looking for or what she needs and then to watch her give up it's probably the most heartbreaking thing as a parent because you just look and you think is she one day just going to completely stop and just go what's the point you're never going to understand but she's a determined little soul and she'll keep going which is which is great but uh, so I have I have a uh, and while I don't have an understanding, I don't know a lot about verbal dys- dyspraxia until I f- first heard about it last year. I have huge, huge sympathies for children that get diagnosed with it and for their families. And one of the mums has contacted us says, my boy Michael has a severe expressive verbal impairment and Evelyn and Julie who you spoke with on the programme and others who are on a support page have been my support network around what Michael needs and how to assess it. Michael has great support from our local SLT speech and language therapist but that's finished now thankfully he will secure a place in a language class in Mallow what Julie was talking about where her son is Julie and Evelyn says this text are amazing women amazing advocates I'd be lost without them well done that's a lovely text thank you for that keep fighting the fight on behalf of your son. Okay some other texts coming into us Patricia tell the people in North Cork and West Cork who are receiving appointments today to go to the city not to worry about it at all I'm 60 I got my vaccine yesterday in Porky Cueve plenty of parking no long queues I was in and out in about 30 minutes I was very honoured by the way that it was a member of the Defence Forces that administered my jab they were all so lovely they do great work in there Now I was a bit tired last night but I slept all night no problem thank God much better today no other side effects terrific well done that's from Joan in McCroom and you'll be back again in three months for the second jab but you're on the road to being vaccinated and that's what it's all about. And then obviously there's a worry and a concern. Some people are worried about AstraZeneca uh, and people are, there's a constant argument of people wanting to choose their vaccine. And of course, when we know we're not allowed to do that. You get an appointment, whatever vaccine is available, you must take. Well, a listener's worried about AstraZeneca and is in particular worried about the Indian variant, which has now been identified in London, but it's been identified in the UK. We've had some cases in Northern Ireland uh, as well. Anyway, the sister is talking about it was identified in a London nursing uh, home and AstraZeneca hasn't hit it. Some of the patients ended up in hospital. People complain and they have good 
good reason. Pfizer, I feel, is the better vaccine. People have a right to look for what works, especially those of us in our 60s. We are at a higher risk uh, and they're f- than those getting AstraZeneca. We should demand a Pfizer top-up in attempt to protect against the variants. Vaccines are all about saving lives and we need one that works. All our lives are important. Keep up the good work. Well, I can, when I did a quick sort of Google search on that, on the whole thing about the Indian variant and the fact that it has been identified in the UK and they have had a couple of clusters in nursing homes. Firstly, scientists believe that all of the existing vaccines are helping to control the variant when it comes to preventing severe disease. And that's what getting the vaccine is all about. Every every scientist and every doctor will tell you that there is no vaccine that is 100% going to stop you getting COVID-19 or indeed getting any illness when you get a particular vaccine against whatever disease you're getting the vaccine uh, for. But what it does is when you get a vaccine, it means the difference between little or no disease and it means the difference between ending up in hospital with the risk of dying. And that's why scientists will tell you, you take the first vaccine you're offer, offered and don't make the mistake in hesitating and uh, waiting for an ideal vaccine because there will never be an ideal vaccine because while people are very concerned at the moment in the World Health Organization is concerned about the Indian variant because it's now a variant of concern. There will be another variant next month. There'll be another variant the month after. That's why it's so important that we vaccinate everybody worldwide to stop these variants because we're not all safe until everyone is safe. That's why everybody worldwide, that's why the third world countries in particular need help in getting vaccines to them to stop new variants from developing. And just on that the clusters that were identified in the UK and it was one London nursing home where they discovered a cluster of this new B16172 that's the that's the Indian variant and there was 15 people in that particular nursing home and they'd all received their second dose of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine in the past week prior uh, to the outbreak. Now four of our listeners right, four of those cases ended up in hospital but none of the cases, they were all non-serious illness and there was no reports of uh, death. So they ended up in hospital. It might have had nothing at all to do with the COVID that they suddenly detected in them. Uh, they, could have, they were in nursing homes, it could have been for any other reason but they didn't get severely ill because the vaccine protected them even though they picked up this new variant and there was no deaths and that's what we have to keep in mind when you go along for your vaccine there's no such thing as the perfect uh, vaccine Hi, thank you for your text. Hi Patricia, I got my jab last week in City Hall. I was in and out in about 20 to 25 minutes. However, my daughter got hers yesterday in the South Infirmary. She had an appointment for one thirty-five, and she didn't get done until 20 past three. There was crazy queues. She was nearly two hours uh, waiting. Uh, hi, yeah, um, some, I, I, I don't know why that happens and because we're told the appointments are scheduled in such a way and you don't turn up, and you don't go in until it is your time but it is disappointing. But listen, she got her jab and that's the most important thing. Hi Patricia, thinking of booking a hotel for June, for three nights. Our hotel serving bar and restaurant for the residents? Yes, they are. When hotels open at the beginning of June, which is the 2nd of June, they're, they're open for a week ahead of outdoor 
dining in restaurants and they will be allowed to serve food and they will be allowed to serve drink only to the residents in the hotel and then the following week there will be outdoor dining because when we had Dean O'Donovan on from O'Donovan's Hotel last week on a different issue when she got knocked off her bike and I asked her you know just at the end of the interview I was just chatting to her about how was she all set and ready for the hotels to open she was saying that first week for a lot of hotels it's going to be it's going to be very busy for the hotels because it means if somebody's staying there they're going to have to have all of their meals there they won't be able to you know when people check into a hotel and you might stroll around the town and you'll go into somewhere else you might drive somewhere and go somewhere and have a meal or book into a restaurant for a meal that night they won't be able to do that certainly for the first week but then from the second week in June uh, they will be able to but yes if you're booking into a hotel you'll be able to eat and drink in the hotel and here's a good one this is I'm assuming from an employer how would people respond to this what do you do when a member of staff is refusing to come back to work because they're getting more on the pup payment. What would people suggest doing? I don't know how many other employers are having a problem with that. I know that there are many I know our our job link and I mentioned it when I read out our job link, our job link is is, is, I don't think it's ever I've ever seen it uh, so busy. There's a lot of people looking to employ uh, people and I know within the hospitality industry there's a problem in that people have been out of work for so long they've gone, they've either retrained or they've moved to a completely different industry and it is going to be a problem getting hospitality staff to come back to work and I'm, I don't know whether it's going to happen in retail as well with retail reopening next Monday will there be some people who've got jobs elsewhere that's understandable people would have been out of work for four and a half months not everybody wants to live on a pandemic payment and would have gone on and got jobs somewhere else but what do you do when a member of staff when you ring up a member of staff and say your job is ready to go next Monday whenever it is and they say no I'll stay on the pop payment please because I earn more on the pop payment than I do by going back to work. My initial reaction would be should you look at paying the person more and I don't know and I'm not being flippant when I say that but I mean a pandemic payment at the very most is €350. It won't remain at €350. I don't know when it's going to start uh, decreasing but one wonders how much is the person getting paid that they're saying that they earn more on that than they would by going back into a full-time job unless it's only a part-time job that the person has been offered. 1850 Your thoughts welcomed. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council's Community Support Programme, here to assist vulnerable people with their daily needs through the COVID 19 pandemic. See corkcoco.ie. Duke of Clannacilty Heritage, they're presenting their May lecture. Now, obviously, it'll be done on Zoom. It's happening tomorrow evening at half past eight. Dr. Damien Shields will deliver the lecture on recovering the voices of West Cork in the American Civil War. Registration for the Zoom is on Duke of Heritage page, or you can go on their website, dukasclannaciltyheritage.ie. Kildare Drive in Bingo, that recommences this Friday night, eight o'clock. It'll be in the Creamery Car Park. And the best of luck to Martin Milan and his friends who will be climbing Caron Tool in a month's time, Saturday the 12th of June. It's to raise funds for Mallow Search and Rescue. You can support them by donating to their GoFundMe page. All money raised will go directly to the Mallow Search and Rescue, who of course are a volunteer service involved in the search and rescue of missing people all over the country. Court today on C103. With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. And John Paul tells me we're getting a few calls in 
this morning from people who've received a call from what they thought was an 085 number. It's claiming to be from Electric Ireland, but they are scam calls. So beware of that, please. But it looks like it's coming from an 085 uh, number. And I've been asked to say thank you to neighbours in Drumahan who, the sister said, drove around my mother's house. My mother is Rita Lucy in Drumahan and she celebrated her 90th birthday at the weekend. And the neighbours and many friends turned out and they did a drive by at the house to wish her a happy birthday because obviously with social distancing they couldn't have a normal uh, party rose and all the family were on and her brother Dan just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who turned out to make Rita Lucy's birthday so special uh, ha- once again happy birthday uh, Rita for last weekend now washing machines fridges beds sofas are among the most common items abandoned in the country's forests by environmental vandals using nature as their dumping ground. Quilta unfortunately have to pick up the cost of cleaning up the mess and joining me from Quilta is Mick Power who is their National Estates Manager. Good afternoon to you Mick. How are you Patricia? How's it going? I'm, I'm, I'm very well thank you and you're welcome to the programme. Now I mentioned this earlier that you were going to be joining us on the programme and I was mentioning the fact that all of the electrical items that I called out there they can be disposed of free of charge either at an electrical shop or a civic community site. Is it hugely frustrating for you that people decide to pick up these items? They need to put them in a, in a van or a trailer and then drive them to a wooded area instead of going on to a civic community site? Absolutely makes no sense. And <laughs> you're 100% right. Every one of those items that you listed there, which we find in the forest, are all recyclable. If you buy a new fridge or oven or dishwasher uh, from the likes of Electro City or some company like that, they've got an articulated truck parked outside to gather all the disposable stuff that you bring in. No issue, no argument. So for people to go to the bother of lugging this up to the forest and trying to get rid of it under the trees and it makes absolutely no sense. But it happens, I think it's a product of the man with the van syndrome uh, who's still alive and well, uh, you know. And when you see the other refuse that come with it, such as household refuse, tyres, old furniture, as I said, house renovations material, old windows cut out, broken beds, broken sofas, you know, I, I think it's a product of that type of thing. You know, people are giving a bit of a clean-up or a clean-out and getting rid of the material in the handiest possible way after that, you know. And to hell with even thinking about who's going to clean it up, because clean it up, it, it has to be done. And that isn't right. coming cheap. No. Um, as I said, over the last five years, we're, we've spent over €2 million Euros on that type of clean-up. Now, that comes from, uh, we have what they call estates contractors, and they go out to the sites when we pinpoint the, the, the dumping areas, they gather it up, they bring it to uh, a disposal area, and we then have to pay for the disposal on a weight basis. <clears throat> so it certainly is a very uh, expensive business. And I always make the point that over the last five years, you know, we have a lot of amenity and recreation sites, as you know, areas that people enjoy very, very much. But if we had an extra two million to put into those areas to upgrade them, mm-hmm. it would be a far greater benefit to the public 
than to be picking up somebody else's rubbish. Yeah, we all, we ultimately all pay for it because Absolutely. services get diverted um, other ways. And besides the unsightly side for visitors, uh, Mick, I mean, this illegal dumping does it also cause environmental problems for you? It it, it does it does of course it, it it does of course. Like I mean, uh, a lot of this material will end up in drains and streams and all that type of thing, and that's feeding into water catchments and supply areas. Uh, you have animals that are out there as well pulling these bags apart and it's only God knows what they come across when they get the bags opened and that's dragged all over the place. So there certainly is, um, you know, an environmental cost to it as well. Yeah, somebody saying that there was no electrical items uh, but 40 black bags of rubbish and a bed was dumped in Leem Lara Woods about two weeks ago. And I think yes. because, with, particularly with lockdown and people trying to get out to do a bit of exercise, like a lot of people are walking in these wooded areas and people are discovering wooded areas within their 5K that they'd never seen before. And I think people are shocked when they come across rubbish. They are, that's true. And, uh, you know, the, the visitors to the forest uh, did rocket over the last two years, given the lockdown. And yes, you're dead right in what you're saying. People did discover the local amenities that they have, but they also discovered uh, what's going on out there. And that's good. It's been brought to our attention. We've dealt with an awful amount of it. And hopefully we're on the way to putting a stop to it because people are becoming more vigilant and more conscious of the environment. Now, I, I would have to say, Patricia, that 99.99% of people are very compliant and are very shocked over what they see from time to time. It's it's the rump that does the harm. Mm. And the quicker that we can get that rump put out of business and compliant, the better. Better for everybody. It's I... not just money uh, from our end of it. It's, you know, our, our amenity and... and um, uh, recreation areas need to be presented properly for, for people's own pleasure. We have an open forest policy. We invite everybody to come in to walk in the forest and our policy is love this place and leave no trace. We have no problem with visitors. We welcome everybody in. Do you encourage people to report the illegal dumping to you? Absolutely. We have no issue in the world with that. We have uh, a confidential line which we which we which we have installed and if people want to give a ring on that, and we get a lot of information from that, uh, it's on our website on the, in the security area. And if people want to give a ring, you needn't leave anything other than where the rubbish is. Right? If you see something and you want to report it, that's okay too. That's all confidential. Mm. No problem with that. Do you manage to prosecute many of the offenders, Mick? We do have a level of prosecutions. Now, as an organisation, we have no ability to prosecute anybody, but we work very closely with the litter wardens and the guardee, and they will have their wins from time to time and, and very substantial wins, which is great because that kind of put manners on an area. We do have surveillance cameras out there as well um, in our, what we classify as hotspots or our potential dangerous areas, uh, we would monitor those. We don't want to overdo it with cameras either because they can be invasive to to the public. Um, it's a low level of monitoring, but we limit it to a large degree to the areas that are problematic. And is, and that, is that the way forward to, to have CCTV? Uh, well, we, we're, we're using it, uh, and we're using it to good effect. And, you know, when people do realise that places are being monitored, they will go away from yeah. Yeah. They certainly will. But look, nobody wants to be watching um, every 
little saddleness out there. Like, you know what I mean? People I know, want I know. to walk in the forest with a bit of peace and ease without somebody looking over their shoulder. And we would be very conscious of that as well. But at the same time, you know, when a problem arises, uh, you know, we, we would have to use that technology to try and solve it as best we could, you know. Okay, and obviously we've got very wet weather at the moment and it's forecast for for the rest of the week so we don't have much worries of people having barbecues or, or lighting fires. No, but that's no, that's no. a big issue for Quilta when we do get dry spells. Yes, sir, we've yes, had sir, some yes, devastating yes. fires already yeah. this year. Yeah, well the fire in Dunmanway, uh, yeah. your area there, uh, the weekend before last, well it, it, it was a bad fire but it could have been a lot, lot worse. Um, you know, it came in off the public road uh, you know, the vegetation was inside the hedgerows then for it to take off and take off. It did. And we had been very much involved in the Killarney National Park and we had to pull the helicopter out of there to to sort out Dunmanway. You know, so they're the type of things that happen, uh, you know, and you're putting pressure on resources that are already stretched. Uh, you know, we have people that have to work with the COVID pandemic and still work side by side in emergency situations where fires are concerned. So you're putting everybody at risk mm. by doing things like that, you know. And I know when we were talking about the Dunmanway fire and we were mentioning what, what had happened in uh, Killarney, we had one of our listeners who was saying that she had been out in a forestry area, I think it was down in, in, in West Cork as well, and uh, she, the, the previous weekend, lovely weather and all of that, and she said that there was three guys walking close by her and she said she could smell their tobacco smoke. She knew that they were smoking. And whatever way she looked, she realised one of them had just flicked a cigarette but and yes, she went over and exactly. looked and she said it started to smoulder now she was there with her dog now she put it out and she I mean she was great she was very civic minded she used one of the dog poo bags to pick it up to make sure that it was completely gone out and she disposed of it afterwards but she was making the point how quickly and how easily a fire can start even Ab- just ab- with a cigarette absolutely. butt Absolutely yeah and that's that's careless Yeah uh, ah. You know it's careless but uh, you know I, I would have to say, and, and I, I would look after a lot of the fires up and down the country, that, you know, nobody goes out deliberately to burn the mm. forest. It happens as a consequence of their actions. And whether that action is careless or deliberate or maybe uh, burning rubbish, maybe where they shouldn't be burning it or something, it's, it's, it's a careless action uh, to a large degree that, that, that causes it. And if they'd only stand back and view the damage that's done, Damage can be unbelievable. Uh, you know, last we're, we've, we're only on the cusp of starting this year. Last year, we had some disastrous fires. And, you know, uh, I suppose the example of the Killarney National Park should live in everybody's mind for a long time to come because a lot of damage was done there, both, you know, both to the vegetation, but the, the environment, uh, to nesting birds, and, you know, wildlife of all sorts. You know, I think we have to be fair to everybody when it comes to that, you know. Yeah, I saw some of the photographs. It's just devastating to see the scorched earth. It was just Absolutely. shocking. Absolutely. shocking. Listen, Mick, I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that. Keep up the great work. And thanks, thanks very much for, thanks for joining us. No, bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good afternoon. Mick Power there, who is National Estates Manager with Quilta. Colm in Butterman said, I used to work with the council. And he said, I used to find it so frustrating when you would find rubbish uh, dumped and they, you'd go 
through the rubbish and be, there'd be a name of a person in the middle of uh, the rubbish. It would go to court and so many of the cases were thrown out because they would say there wasn't enough evidence even though there was names contained inside in the dump, in the rubbish. Some had claimed that they had paid somebody to dump the rubbish for them but then they'd never be able to give you a name of the person who they paid to dump the rubbish. I found rubbish dumped uh, at one time in North Cork and it had a Limerick address. So I went to Limerick. Go on, Connor. And uh, knocked on the door and I, I call him, go on, call him. And knocked on the door and said, did you dump this rubbish? Or did you give it to somebody else to be dumped? I was told to go away. I'd say not in a very polite manner. Call him, you were told to go away. So frustrating. So even though you had somebody earlier saying that there was rubbish found in abandon, it won't, it's very hard to prove that that person actually dumped it. 1850 333 and somebody wants us to recognise and remember that it was 15 years ago today that the Mallow Sugar Factory closed for the final time. Goodness, where did those 15 years uh, go? But 15 years ago today. And on the listeners having a problem saying, what do I do if you've got staff who won't come back to work because they're getting more on the pop payment? Some of your thoughts on that. It just shows how badly paid they were in the, uh, in day one. Cheap labour needs to stop. John and Clan says, Patricia, on the pop payment, what's going to happen in a few weeks' time? This payment will be stopped. If you've no job then, you're going to have to sign on for job seekers. That's to stop people drawing this payment and working at the same time are, like your listener, finding it hard to get employers to come back because they don't want to go back to work. I see it everywhere. Someone else says they probably have to travel to work by car. Has anybody thought about that? No extra pay. They need to be paid properly to survive. And another listener says, watch, everything will go up within hotels and hospitality. The only thing that won't go up will be workers' wages. 1850 333 103. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Court today on C103. With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Now, having just spoken with Quilta about the cost to the organisation for illegal dumping and the fact that most of the items that are illegally dumped could actually be recycled at a bring centre, we heard about one of our local county councillors who took a no-nonsense approach to tackle illegal dumping by calling to the home of a woman who was caught on CCTV leaving down bags of rubbish in Bandon. Fianna Fáil councillor Sean O'Donovan joins me. Good afternoon to you, Sean. Good afternoon, Patricia. You're extremely brave and well done to you on this. Tell us what happened. Well, I suppose it started um, the last few Saturdays. A group of us have been out in Bandon cleaning the approach roads. And uh, last Saturday, we've done the riverbank um, up into the park, the bogs, the beautiful uh, walkway in Bandon. And on Sunday, um, a bag of rubbish was dumped um, in the middle of the day on the walkway. And... Um, there was a bit of uproar, I suppose, after all the work that was done on Saturday. Um, and then yesterday, I went to the walkway and there was another three bags of rubbish. So, uh, eventually got um, the person identified and I just I just called to her door, I suppose, just to see what the situation was and, and just asked her not to, not to do it, that we knew who she was and what she was doing. So, I just, you know, said if, if it continues, that there'd be consequences um, to follow if, if it kept kept going. What did she say to you? Well, not obviously naming her. What did she say to you? She um, kind of denied it first, but then um, admitted it and, and just promised me that it wouldn't happen again. And was it domestic rubbish? It was domestic rubbish, yeah. And how did you work out it was she had dumped it? Um, I suppose a number of things. Um, she was seen. It was it was half one in, in the middle of the day on Sunday. Um, seen walking with the with the rubbish through the car park. Um, and the CCTV in the locality as well. So, and then suddenly seen without any bags. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Was she mortified? Um, yes, I will. I would say so. Yeah. Um, and I suppose a little bit of me feels sorry for the person. Um, we just don't know what's going on in anybody's house or in anybody's life. So um, there's, there's. Uh, I just said that there was, there was help there basically, and if she wanted to talk to me if there was other issues uh, to give me a call or whatever, you know, just to think about it and if I could help in another way if there was other issues going on that I would, you know. Could it be a case that she can't afford her bin charges? I'm not sure, Patricia, being honest, she didn't say it. and She actually told me that they had bins in the house, so I'm not sure. Do you think it was her first time doing it? I honestly don't know. I couldn't say whether it was or not, but it was the first time, I suppose, me finding out that this was one person that was doing it anyway, so that's why I took the action that I did. I don't know, was it brave or stupid, but... 
Well, it was, I mean, it was very brave because we just had uh, Colm from Baltimore who worked with the council many years ago and he did something similar. Somebody had dumped rubbish in North Cork and he went through the bags and discovered it was somebody in Limerick and he went in, got in the car, went up to Limerick. Now he got short change. He didn't get very far with it. But the usual excuse that's used by some people is, oh, I, I paid a man with a van. I mean, we, you've got to be very careful about paying a man with a van to take away any rubbish, don't you? You absolutely do, yeah. They, they are, it's, it's regulated, so they have to be registered and all that and, and have a licence for it, you know. So you just can't give it to anybody. You just have to check out the details of who you're giving it to because at the end of the day, um, you're responsible. It's your rubbish. So the cheap way out sometimes isn't um, the best way, you know. We had somebody then also, Durham Band, in contact us this morning and said somebody dumped uh, a bag of rubbish at Begley's Lane overnight and that wildlife got at it and there was an, un- an almighty mess in the lane this morning. That's right. I actually saw that on social media this morning. Um, I haven't been talking to the council um, as of yet, but um, yesterday evening I suppose I was contacted by um, a local company in Bandon, Sintel uh, Security, and they've offered um, help with security with CCTV cameras and stuff like that. So I'm actually going to have a meeting with them this evening um, just to see the land of the, the law, I suppose, and GDPR and all that. That's a big worry, you know. Um, and sometimes it isn't about finding rubbish. It depends where the rubbish is dumped as well, because if it's dumped on private property, it's not a public issue. It's, it's a civil issue, so nothing can be done by the little warren when it's on private property. Or if somebody comes along and puts it into your bin, it's nothing to do with the council. It's between you and, uh, and the, the bin owner and the person who puts the litter in there, you know. So it's just not all clear cut as, as some people might think. And are you a member of a tidy towns group? Is it? Sean? I'm not. A, no, I'm not a member of the tidy towns. I'm I'm a good supporter of them, but I just don't have the time to commit to them. But I suppose um, a group of us just got together. I suppose it started off with the cross barrier to Bandon Road. There, um, every time I drove it, it was just littered with um, a lot, an awful lot of rubbish, and it was driving me mad. So I contacted the local group out there and got some volunteers from around um, the roadway and. We did a litter pick and it went down very well. We got a lot of rubbish out there and the road looked very well after it. And then other people contacted me and we kind of ended up doing every second Saturday on different roads around the place, you know, in well and Bandon. Um, where where would we be without tidy towns groups or groups like yourself just organising? And I just don't know. The tidy towns are just absolutely amazing. And they seem to be taking on or being given more and more work every year, you know. And... Like a lot of the people would be, would be semi-retired or people that live locally, but then there's some young people coming up. And I suppose the, one of the schools in the locality then recently, they're doing a program and it's called Little Pickers. So we've, we've had a, some of those little pickers out with us as well on some days. And that's what it's about, I think, Patricia. It's education for the younger people. And hopefully when they grow up, you know, teenagers and into their 30s and 40s, they won't even consider littering because they'll... Yeah, I saw, actually, I saw a group of a secondary school uh, pupils, I think they're from the Patrician Academy in Mallow, out uh, litter picking around the streets during school hours, whether they were transitioning students or, or what. And I thought it was great. And that did, that stru- struck me that if they were out picking up litter, they'll be slow themselves to dump litter in the, in the future. It's great. It's all about education. Oh. We actually had a, a group in Bandon from Skullpodrick Nafer as well the week before that. They um, did a litter pick around Bandon and they picked around, I think, around 30 bags of rubbish, you know. So that's what it's all about. The younger people won't do it. It's it's about education as far as I can see. Yeah, and we have to stop it. Listen, um, well done once again. I think it was very brave of you. And I'm sure that that woman will never dump rubbish again. Uh, But uh, thank you for joining us and talking to us on the programme today.
Thank you, Patricia. Good Thank afternoon to you. Bye bye. That Thank is uh, Bandon's Finnafall uh, County Councillor Sean O'Donovan. Now, we mentioned the protest that was, C- was at CUMH earlier. Well, we sent our senior news reporter, Fiona Corcoran, along to the protest this morning just to talk to some of the people that were protesting about the restrictions at the hospital. And she spoke with Caroline Daly, who had had a baby in CUMH just four weeks ago. It's Caroline Daly. So, Caroline, just tell me about your own experience. You had a baby here four weeks ago. I did, yeah. Um, my daughter was born here um, four weeks ago um, by C-section. So my husband was able to be present for the delivery and for an hour after. But he didn't see her again then until he picked us up three days later. You know, which is obviously was really disappointing. And, you know, from our perspective, I think it's the absence of any explanation of the basis for the restrictions is what we find so frustrating. You know, like... I'm a reasonable person um, and I think if there's an explanation or a basis for why the restrictions are justified, let's have it and let's see it. You know, like we're intelligent people, we can understand that and obviously everyone wants to be protected from COVID. But, you know, the absence of that information is really frustrating. I think the silence is deafening, to be perfectly honest. Um, and and look, we've had the CMO come out, we've had Hall Martin come out. They're all saying there's no justifiable basis from a public health perspective as to why this should continue and yet it continues you know. Did you have to go to your scans throughout your pregnancy alone? Yeah entirely alone Um, and again you know at no point when I had those scans was my temperature even taken so like you know I, I can't understand how if we're talking about risk mitigation here how you know my husband who lives with me you know, we're cohabiting. How is the risk anyway mitigated by excluding him when, when I'm not even tested for a temperature check before I go in for those scans? And after you had your baby and you were here on your own for the three days, what was the worst thing about not having your partner here? Um, the most difficult thing was, you know, we, we were trying to, like I was trying to breastfeed my daughter. Um, and I think it's it's the lack of support for all of those things. Like you're, you know, you're physically trying to do that. Um, but at the same time, you need to try to take care of yourself. Like, you know, I had a C-section, so I had major abdominal surgery and I was trying to take care of a newborn, you know, on my own. And the midwives are excellent, you know, and I'm sure this has been reiterated time and time again. You know, I can't fault the quality of the care I received and, and I would commend them highly for that, for the work they're doing in difficult circumstances. But really the knock-on impact of this and the fact that partners aren't able to be there to support these women giving birth is the fact like the midwives then have to carry all that slack you know and we had international you know day of the midwife there the other week and people are celebrating the great work that these these midwives do and yet you know we're not helping them you know if we would allow a support person in like you know the testing is there there's capacity in the system to be able to test partners you know if they are clear of covid let them come in and let them share some of that burden first of all and support the women who so who so desperately need it. And in, in both good circumstances and bad, I think it's important to highlight that. You know, there's an awful lot of women have had to bear their souls here and lay forth their own tragedy just in an effort to get themselves heard. And, and that's not right. And at the other end of the spectrum, you know, most people have one, two, three babies. Like, this is not something that happens every week for people. It's a once, twice, thrice in a lifetime event. And if everything goes well, and as we hope it should, to exclude partners from that experience with no justifiable basis is wrong. What was it like for your partner not being able to be here for you and the newborn baby and having that bonding time with the baby and being able to support you? Um, it was really difficult for him. Um, he he found it really frustrating and I think he found it upsetting. You know, obviously we had a really straightforward birth. 
thankfully. But, you know, in the days that follow, you know, if you're trying to get breastfeeding established, if you're trying to take care of yourselves, like there are highs and lows. And and he's just at the end of the phone, you know, trying to support me in that regard and not able to physically be there, not able to take the baby to give me a break, to have a rest. Like I had four and a half hours sleep in three days that I was there. Again, like if we're talking about risk, you know, is that the most sensible thing, you know, for the baby or for me? I'm not sure that it is. Um, and, I, and I certainly think as well, you know, anecdotally, what I've heard is that women aren't staying in hospital as long as maybe, you know, the medics would like them to, to ensure recovery after birth. They're so anxious to get out of there and get home to their support network that, it get, you know, they're, they're leaving hospital as soon as they, they absolutely can. So again, if we're taking a risk-based approach to this, what's the greater risk at this point? Okay, that's Caroline Daly who was uh, speaking in the last couple of hours with our senior news reporter Fiona Corcoran from that protest which took place at 11 o'clock this morning at CUMH. Before I go on dumping uh, Hi uh, Patricia, there's also a problem with people dumping rubbish in Kahula and the Borland Valley We're asking people to please stop if you get time to read out this comment and someone else says Patricia, it's not poor it's not just poor people who are dumping rubbish and over a professional couple in North Cork that were dumping rubbish and the landowner had to clean up the area. We are a country of laws and nobody there to implement them. We need to put a value on rubbish. Sweden have it mastered. You can take your rubbish to a vending machine in shops and you get money back off your shopping. That's where I leave you. Thank you for that. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon. We're back with you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock until then I'm Patricia Mester. Very good afternoon. Stay safe. Cork Today on C103 with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.